You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So, good morning, and uh, we are starting our study in the Shorter Catechism, and our hope is that we'll make it all the way through, 107 questions. Um, Sometimes we'll put questions together, but we're looking at probably at least 80 to 90 Sundays, which a great study. So, to begin with, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you because you are the everlasting God. You're the creator of all things. You're our heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. You've adopted us into your family. You've given us uh, incredible liberties and privileges. And we thank you that we can come before you this morning and ask your blessing upon our work. We do pray that the Holy Spirit will be present guiding our discussion. And may it all serve to glorify the name and the honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I know that, uh, I think Jennifer put these up here. These are uh, shorter catechisms. If anybody needs one, you're welcome to it. And you can bring it back. Uh, come on up. Uh, here you go. Do you want to walk around with Walk around with Oh, sure. Thanks, Sue. <clears throat> If you don't mind, if you could try to bring that back with you. Um, As you can see, there's a limited supply, so there's plenty there for everybody. But if you can bring it back with you, that would be helpful. All right, question number one. Westminster Shorter Catechism, just a brief introductory. Um, This Westminster Shorter Catechism, WSC, is a summary of Christian doctrine, and it does consist of 107 questions and answers. Now, of course, this is the whole catechetical method. You, um, you ask the question, and you wait for the response. That Greek word katecheo is based upon uh, the Greek word echo. And so the idea was that the catechist would give the question, and he'd wait for the echo. That's catechism. This was produced by the Westminster Assembly in London roughly 380 years ago, along with the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we've studied. And in the church, this has been one of the most important tools for biblical and theological instruction. And I can't commend it enough for parents or for anybody. As a matter of fact, because I was converted late in life and was biblically ignorant, I didn't know anything. Uh, One of the greatest tools in my own preparation for ministry was memorizing the catechism. It's just tremendous uh, training. Few documents have so powerfully shaped and influenced the lives of Christians as this one. By memorizing it, the answers, some have memorized the questions and answers, and even I think one man, a friend of mine, memorized the biblical texts that support the answer. If you want to go to that extreme, you can. You learn the biblical answers to the most important religious questions. These things have been thought about and debated and prayed over before. There's no sense reinventing the wheel. 
So it provides categories in which to understand doctrine, because as we know, false teaching abounds, even in the so-called evangelical world. Lots of false teaching. And so this gives us the categories in which to put biblical truth and to think it through. It instills sound biblical theological truth. Experientialism is rampant in our culture. It denigrates truth and doctrine. I think I've said this before. A friend of mine who went to a different church told me when I saw him again, hey, it's not about doctrine, it's about a relationship. And his point was, I focus too much on doctrine and I should focus on relationship. Well, it shouldn't be either or. It's both. How do you know to have a relationship with who without doctrine? It's so important. This has a Godward focus. It exalts Christ, it humbles man, and it promotes lives of holiness. That's wonderful biblical truth. It enables us to grasp the scope of Scripture. In our parenting group, one of the questions I asked was, when did you begin to get a grasp of the scope of the whole? The sweep of redemptive history. You know, you become a Christian, I did, and I was told, memorize these texts. And I did, and it was wonderful. And those memorized texts helped me. But it, over time, I began to get an idea of the scope of the Bible. It's a drama, the whole thing. And the catechism helps us to understand the whole drama of redemption, the scope of the whole, covenant theology, redemptive history, and so forth. Very important. Few tools provide such rich opportunities for the discussion of eternal things. And salvation. If you're catechizing somebody, it doesn't have to be a child. It can be, I catechized a 20-some-year-old man. And he and I had wonderful conversations. Um, <clears throat> it helps us to think about things. And he never would have thought to ask those questions. I wouldn't have thought about those questions. <laughs> Why do believers die? If your sins are forgiven and death is the wages of sin, why do believers die? Well, the catechism teaches us. It's a question I never realized. It's the best tool for making disciples that the church has ever produced. Any comments, questions on preliminary? Yes, John. Uh, prior to this being written in the 1600s, what, was there an oral tradition like for years, or was it more assembled and composed and analyzed in the 1600s? Well, it's a good question. There were plenty of creeds, confessions, and catechisms upon which these men built. So these men are standing on the shoulders of giants, and we're standing on the shoulders of these giants. So, yeah, it wasn't as if just out of, you know, out of nothing. They just created it. Yeah. They had the 39 articles. They had the Irish articles. They had so many catechisms. So they understood, and they had been catechized. But I think they came up with the best, you know. And the Heidelberg Catechism is phenomenal. It's much warmer. It's... It uses the personal pronouns, me, mine, our, and so forth, but I don't think it can compare with the consistency, the reasonableness, the scope. I prefer the Westminster because of that. But again, the Westminster, or the Heidelberg is phenomenal. Okay, so it's not easy to learn. It's well worth the investment. B.B. Warfield, the famous professor at Princeton Seminary, said its framers were less careful to make it easy than to make it good. 
they sought to set down in it not the knowledge the child has, but the knowledge the child ought to have. It instills knowledge, right? Take a child, for example. If you're catechizing a child, they don't know what these words mean. One of the questions has to do with uh, the preface to the Ten Commandments, and my kids always got, the, the Bible says, he brought me, uh, how's it go, broccoli, what's that? Brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And my kids would always say, broccoli out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> they had no idea what they were saying, but it gave them the language. And then they began to fill those words with truth. That's how we learn. It requires effort, consistency, review, 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 and diligence, just like in any other department of knowledge. In any department you've learned, you've had to work. It takes time. And the faith is no different. Entrust these things to faithful men. Entrust them. Well, what are you going to entrust to them? You've got to learn what it is. The basic principles, fundamental doctrines of Christianity must be learned like anything else. Again, experientialism, everything's based upon experience, thinks Christianity is concerned exclusively with feelings, emotion, and experience. Now, we don't denigrate those things. Feeling is good. Don't get me wrong. We are feeling creatures. We have emotions. That's a wonderful thing that God's given to us. But these need to be governed, not to lead the way. And that's the problem. It's through the knowledge of the truth under the influence of the spirit that true religion exists. And the value here can be appreciated by some anecdotes. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was staying in London. He was uh, lodging with a Scottish friend of his. And a young, man had, a young man had come in to talk to Moody. <clears throat> and in that conversation, he asked, what is prayer? So you have the host, you have Moody, you have the young man. Before Moody could even answer the question, the host's 10-year-old daughter comes down the stairs at just at the right moment. And so the host put the question to his 10-year-old daughter, what is prayer? She had no idea what was going on, but she realized at once that she was being asked to say her catechism. Prayer is an offering up of desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. <laughs> 10 years old. And Moody said, ah, the catechism, wonderful. It's true, this 10-year-old girl could instruct this inquiring young man because she had been catechized. Now, does that mean that she understands the depth of what prayer is? No. But she had a ready answer. Any questions on what we've gone through on this page? Okay. Man's chief end, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I, you probably heard that joke, what is the chief end of man? And somebody said, well, his head. That's not what it's talking about. You could say his feet, I don't know. Chief end, the catechism refers to the primary purpose, the ultimate goal for men and women and children. What is it? The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the unbelieving world has a purpose in God's economy. But there is this chief end, this primary purpose, 
Every rational creature is made in God's image, and we need to fulfill a purpose in life. Otherwise, the writer of Ecclesiastes is right. It's vanity. There's no purpose. As he scoured the landscape trying to figure out what was going on, from an unbelieving perspective, all is vanity. It's only when you come to know the true and living God that you have a purpose, an ultimate purpose. There's good reason for human existence. It cannot be found in humanity itself, despite all the attempts of the humanists. They cannot find the chief end of man. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism sets forth in this answer a twofold purpose, each part of which is vitally significant. First, we are to glorify God. Not by making him glorious, he's already infinitely glorious, but by declaring him to be glorious, we ascribe to him the worth that's due to him. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. You glorify God. That's the purpose. We cannot make him glorious. He is already infinitely glorious. You and I are simply unprofitable servants. If we did our duty perfectly, if we fulfilled every single commandment and never sinned once, we would be unprofitable servants. That's our duty. So we cannot make him more glorious, but we can declare him glorious. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Nothing. He's infinitely good. That's why we're here. So we glorify him declaratively both in our hearts by loving him, by our lips, by praising him with, his, with our lives in sincere obedience. So when we try hard, every time we resist a temptation, no matter how great or small it might be, that resistance is glorifying to God. Every time we repent of a sin, and all of us do, <clears throat> that repentance glorifies God. Every time we sing praise and worship, and I'm not, for the life of me, I can't understand how somebody could come to worship and not sing praise. But every time we sing praise and worship, we glorify Him. That's our purpose. God glorifies Himself by providing matter for praise everywhere we look, in the heavens, on earth, in our own being. And we glorify Him by ascribing worth to His name. We have secondary ends. That's true. For example, fill the earth, subdue it, have families or whatever, and raise people and converts and children and go out and work. Those are secondary ends. You have a purpose there. But through that purpose, if it's lawful, you glorify God. So when you do the dishes, and I used to tell myself this when we were changing all those diapers. I think we had 15 years of nonstop diapers. So it was great, you know. Um, <laughs> it was great, yeah. But we glorify God. If we do it in faith, we're caring for his people. So any questions on this before we move on? Okay? Lawful secondary ends, and you know what that means. Uh, going to a job and working and being faithful to our employer, uh, studying in school, serving others, the common good, having family, whatever. Lawful secondary ends may become unlawful if 
they are not subordinate to the glory of God. And this is something to which we're all prone. For example, the Catechism, the larger, teaches us that the sins forbidden in the first commandment include trusting in lawful means. You go into that service of worship, and you put your trust in the preaching or the teaching or the sacraments or the prayers. If you trust in the means without trusting in the God to whom those means point, it's unlawful. And that's the problem of the Pharisees, right? I tithe. I do all these things for you, Lord. No, you don't. You did it for you. You trusted in lawful means. Isaiah chapter 1, or was it 10? Isaiah 1.10, I believe. Your sacrifices are an abomination to me, right? Why? Because they were trusting in the sacrifices and not in God. So the secondary ends can become unlawful. Your family, your spouse, your job. If you put that above the ultimate end of glorifying God, it's unlawful. If the only purpose you have for eating and drinking is to nourish your body, then it's sinful. If our aim in eating and drinking is to be capable of serving in the kingdom of God, then we glorify him, right? Which is one of the reasons we bow our heads and we thank God for this food. That doesn't happen in every household, but hopefully it happens in ours. Um, We thank him for nourishing us and making us capable of further service. No one in this life is able to fully, continuously, or formally and formally do all things to the glory of God. We understand that. Jesus Christ, amazingly, was able to do this. He did this. Thought, word, and deed. Everything, every moment of his entire life, he glorified God. But no other person is able to accomplish it. And yet, the general course of our life The overhaul habit of your existence can be directed to the divine glory. Let me give an example. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. How can he say that? He committed adultery, murder, he lied, he was unrepentant. What do you mean he's a man after your own heart? Well, the general scope of David's life was to glorify God. Yes, he had awful things going on in his life. There was a period in his life where nobody would have thought that he was a believer, but he was, and he glorified God in his whole life. So you look at the whole scope of a man or woman's life, and you say, you know what? The whole scope, that's glorifying to God. And even the repentance of David, we have Psalm 51 because of his repentance. Isn't that wonderful? So it's very important to understand that. We glorify God, for example, when his divine authority is the reason behind our words and actions. We believe a truth simply because he revealed it. Trinity. Who could figure that out? I don't understand it. Hypostatic union, divine and human nature is coming together. That's a mystery. The creation. I wasn't there. You weren't there. We believe it simply because he said it. That's glorifying to God. We perform a duty simply because he commands it, keeping the Sabbath. The world says, you're wasting a seventh of your life. Are you kidding me? How inefficient is this? You just sit around and take a snack and listen to some guy preach. God commands it. God blesses it. 
Pray. Why would you pray? Who, the world says, who's listening to you? Are you talking to yourself? That's the first sign of Alzheimer's, you know. No, we pray because God commands it. And we love our enemies, which is probably one of the hardest things we can do. I'm terrible at that. <laughs> it's so hard. But he commanded it. We are regular and sincere in worship. We're diligent in using the means of grace. We're faithful in striving to obey. And in doing these things, we glorify God, even when we don't want to do it. Any questions on that? Matter of fact, he loves it, I think, most when we do it when we don't want to do it. Because he recognizes we're doing it at that point simply because he does command it. Half the time, or maybe even 75% of the time, the only reason I pray is because he commands me to. I don't want to pray. That's the hardest thing I can do. But I'm told that, I don't know, is it Ezekiel? No, it was Samuel. How can I sin against God and not pray for you? Isn't that incredible? That Samuel considered it a sin against the true and living God if he failed to intercede for God's people. That's huge for an officer of the church. Any questions on this? Or should I move on? Okay. So God's glory should be the great business of human life, the ultimate purpose of every waking day. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That's the purpose. He gives these things to us so that we can declare his praise. What's it in 1 Peter? You know, we're a holy nation, a priesthood, to declare the excellencies of God. So while we have so many secondary ends, the worship of God is probably the most important thing we do, formally, publicly, um, because he's searching for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And that's why we train young worshipers. That's why we love to hear them squeak and squeal and wriggle and all this kind of stuff, because we're training worshipers. We want them there. We can glorify God in our natural activities, such as eating, sleeping, walking, running, thinking, civil activities, studying. This is not just civics. It's civils. Studying, working, buying, selling, helping others. We glorify God in our moral activities, worshiping, honoring, being faithful and honest. You know, Christians are to be different because this is our purpose. And when we're honest in our dealings with one another and our neighbors, that stands out, especially in our day. You know, politicians. Sadly, the whole idea of a politician has been denigrated by the corruption all around the world, not just here in this country. But you find a politician who's honest. <laughs> what a wonderful contrast that is. Who will stand on his principles. He'll only be elected once, but it's a wonderful <laughs> contrast. <laughs> we glorify God in confessing our sins, which is acknowledge, to acknowledge his holy, righteous, and merciful nature. When we confess our sins, we're glorifying his mercy. Right? Because we recognize he's a merciful God. You wouldn't confess your sins to a, a harsh taskmaster. We confess our sins because we apprehend his mercy in Christ. We, we take him at his word. Lord, I am a sinner. I'm a tax gatherer. I can't even lift my eyes. And God says, you'll go down to your house justified. 
That's glorifying to him. Joshua said, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan said, truly, I've sinned against the Lord God. Now, Achan and his family were punished, and yet that confession was glorifying to God. He is the first principle. He is our ultimate end, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. We enjoy life and its good things to evil purpose if we do not live for the glory of the Lord. John Gerstner said, and I have to agree with him, Earth right now is a worse place than hell and a better place than heaven. And you're scratching your head saying, what is he talking about? Earth right now is a worse place than hell and a better place than heaven. And here's why. Because every moment that the unbeliever draws the next breath, he's only aggravating his guilt and heaping wrath upon him. So it's worse than hell, because if he were to go to hell right now, he would not have nearly the wrath that he'll have a week from now. It's better than heaven, because every minute you live as a Christian, you're adding to the rewards that God gives you out of grace. Not that you've earned them. But out of grace, he loves to give rewards to his children. Even the cup of cold water that you give, he'll reward. Nothing will be forgotten. So in that sense, right now, it's worse than hell for some, and it's better than heaven for some, because we're just adding to the crown. I think he's right. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for God shows no partiality. There will be a time of reckoning both for punishments and rewards. Any comments or criticisms or questions on that particular notion? Any questions? Okay. Becca? Just talking about glorifying God and Him being worthy of praise, that idea of going to church when you either feel like a terrible sinner or you're tired or whatever reason, you just don't want to go. Even if your attitude isn't great, you just showing up is saying God is worthy of praise. Yep, exactly. Really encouraging to me of when I know my attitude isn't right, I should still go. Yep. Absolutely. Well said. And I think, again, I think the Lord loves to see that. And he will take us through those dry periods for that reason. You know, if you're a brand new Christian, in my case, I was converted as an adult. So I can remember the contrast between unbelief, belief. And as an early Christian, young Christian, he was so patient and gracious. And there were a few times when I didn't want to go because I was just so excited. You know, honeymoon period. But over time, he teaches us. We mature, and he tests us. He tries us. The, the forefathers used to talk about divine desertions. Now you think to yourself, well, wait a minute. He'll never forsake me. Right, he'll never forsake you. But he may take away the sense that you have of his love. He's with you. He'll never leave you. But he may take your sense of his love away for a time, for his own purpose. And you're thinking to yourself, the heavens are like brass. I don't want to pray because it just seems like I'm praying to nothing, you know. And he says, pray. It's 
So, yeah, you're right, exactly. When you come to worship and you don't feel like it, that glorifies God. Now, at the same time, we tell him, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to be here, but please help my heart to change, you know. We're, he's glorified when we highly esteem him. Pay the utmost respect to his majesty. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome? The more we grow in our knowledge of God, the more we highly esteem him. Again, a plug for catechism, which helps us to understand. He's a God worthy of praise, adoration, having being in and of himself, giving being to us. When we glorify him, when we admire and worship him, ascribing glory and worth to his name, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. There is a glory which is due. Worship him in the splendor of holiness. He's glorified when we love him more than anything else and with the whole heart. Every martyr that's proven that shows that his glory is above all. We love him more than life itself. And I pray, I just pray, that that will be true of me if and when that comes. I don't know. I don't think any of us know. But we pray that God will give us the courage and the grace necessary when that time comes. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I'll glorify your name. Our heart is set upon God in the same way as our hearts would be set upon our treasure. You find a valuable treasure. You care for it. You preserve it. You don't let anything happen to it. We enjoy the lion's share, or he enjoys the lion's share of our affections, which are expressed in our desire to please him. You come to worship even when you don't want to because you want to please him, not yourself. He's glorified when we subject ourselves to him and present ourselves to him for service. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That should be disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. So yeah, you don't feel like being here, but you don't sit there and just complain. You show up and you participate. The angels glorify him by waiting upon him, being ready to serve him, never grumbling at him. Thomas Watson says, the wise men that came to Christ did not only bow the knee to him, but also presented gifts. So we subordinate ourselves to him and we offer to him praise. You sing the praise even though you don't want to do it. Any questions on that? Okay. Okay, well, that's the first one. Secondly, the second uh, conjoined purpose is to enjoy God forever, which is the ultimate method by which we glorify him. I think Piper had a point. John Piper wanted to rephrase the shorter catechism, question one, that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. He has a point. He has a very good point. Thomas Ridgely, a commentator on the larger catechism back in the 19th century, I believe, said the glorifying of God is absolutely the chief and highest end. The enjoying of God is the highest or best in its kind and is at the same time a means leading to the other. So inasmuch as you enjoy God, delight in him, esteem him, honor him, you glorify him. 
He wants us to glorify him by enjoying him. It presupposes a covenant relationship with him so that we can call him God and our God. He's my God. You cannot enjoy that to which you have no right or claim. Like I said, I can't enjoy a house that's not mine. I mean, I can admire it. I can say it's a wonderful house, great curb appeal, but I can't go any farther than the curb unless they invite me in. And even then, it's not mine, right? If it's mine, I can thoroughly enjoy it. Enjoying God refers to communing with him, walking with him, truly delighting in him. This is one of the blessings of the Lord's Supper. It's this spiritual nourishment to the soul, and we commune with God as we take the bread and we chew the bread in our mouths and we take the cup and we drink the juice. We're communing with the living God. We're communing with Christ. The Spirit somehow, by His power, enables us to feed spiritually upon Christ. And it is a fellowship, a communing with Him. We enjoy God. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, John says, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So that fellowship is enjoyable. In this life, you and I enjoy God imperfectly, but the promise is that in the life to come, we're going to enjoy him perfectly. We enjoy him here immediately through ordinances. We meet with God in this public worship. We meet with God in our closets in prayer. We will enjoy him there immediately through Christ. We will be in the immediate vision and fruition of God. Here we are united to Christ in covenant with God, reconciled to the Father and filled with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes through sin or indifference or unbelief, our communion with God is weakened. It can be interrupted. It happens to all of us. It does happen often. But perhaps the sweetest thing we can look forward to about the heavenly enjoyment of God is that it will be forever. It'll never end. Endless enjoyment. Endless glorifying God. Any questions on that part? Okay. Well, the connection, God has joined these two so that one cannot be attained without the other. No one can enjoy God forever in heaven who does not glorify him in time on earth. Now, you've, we've talked about this, all the ways we can glorify God. You cannot glorify him without faith. You, so you can't glorify him subjectively without faith. You have to be a Christian. As we'll see, even the wicked will glorify him objectively. And we'll see in a minute. He will not willingly glorify God who cannot and will not enjoy God as his portion forever. The apostle says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So it is presumptuous to expect blessedness hereafter without due preparation for it here. Through the means of grace, the trials of life, God trains us and makes us ready for heaven. He tells us when the day of dispatch comes. It could be different for all of us. It is. Those who have no interest in or concern for God's glory now will not be crowned in glory 
then. And let me just add this. This is important. A life of evangelical holiness is necessary. Now, some people look at Hebrews 12, 14, and they'll say, well, the holiness without which to see the Lord. I can't be holy. I'm a sinner. You're right. You are a sinner. But there is such a thing called evangelical holiness, which involves believing the promises, confessing your sins, repenting of your iniquity, worshiping the Lord, rejoicing in the gospel. That's evangelical holiness. So we find the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, a sinner, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. How can you say that about Job? He was born in iniquity, conceived in sin. How can you say that, Lord? Well, because the whole scope of his life infused with faith means evangelical holiness. He can say that about Job. He can say that about you and me because of faith in Christ. Those who experience the one will not fail to experience the other. By the eternal enjoyment of God, we will forever glorify him and magnify his mercy and his love and his grace from, for all eternity. And so we may and ought to have an eye toward this enjoyment. So we get our right priorities right. Those who elevate secondary ends to first priority will not glorify, cannot enjoy God. They are people of this world who have their portion in this life and are spiritually dead. She, is, she who is self-indulgent, worldly, is dead even while she lives. That's a sad condition. Christians renounce, deny, forsake all secondary ends if they compete with God's glory. If there is something that competes with the glory of God in your life, get rid of it. Renounce it. I don't care what it is. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, all of us fail in this. <laughs> we all fail. Let's admit it. But that's the goal, right? We're striving. We're trying. We're growing. We're being improved. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we subordinate secondary ends. We can glorify and enjoy him, not only in worship or witnessing, but in myriads of ways. Honest work, faithful study, wholesome recreation, joyful leisure. If this is done in faith, you can glorify God. The whole of life, if lived in conscious devotion to the risen and reigning Christ, can glorify God. And the idea is to be God-centered in everything we do. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All mankind can and will glorify God, though not all will enjoy him forever. The potter has rights over the clay. He makes vessels for honorable use, dishonorable use, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. There are many people who want nothing to do with glorifying God. In fact, no one except those whom the Holy Spirit regenerates will ever want to do this. That's it. It's God-given. It's a gift. This whole thing is a gift. It's nothing we do, nothing in us. It draws him to do it for us. It's a gift. 
But even the unbelievers will, who reject God will objectively glorify his infinite wisdom and justice. Sadly, they will perish, but their eternal damnation will magnify God's wrath against sin. That's a hard saying, but it's not mine. It's scripture. There are believers with changed hearts who will subjectively, consciously glorify God's infinite mercy and grace. They're redeemed and their eternal salvation will magnify his love for the elect. The former glorify and not enjoy God, whereas the latter glorify and enjoy God forever. The king will say to those in his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I have one more slide, but any questions before? Yes, Carrie. I was just thinking with the example of coming to church even though we don't feel like we want to. It's this choice between us and what the Lord commands of us. When we choose ourselves, we're putting God in the wrong, the wrong place, you know? Absolutely. And you think that the people that are not able to choose the Lord, like they choose themselves every time, they're not happier. Right. They're, mi they're miserable. It's misery. Right. Right. Because our purpose, the reason for our existence is to glorify him and enjoy him, right? So if we're not fulfilling our purpose, it is misery. It's like if you take a tool and you use it for the wrong purpose. Oh, this tool stinks. I'm not going to use this tool anymore. Well, it wasn't made for that, you know? Uh, yes, Allison. It seems like there might be times, unless you're really, really mindful, that you might be doing something and it might be glorifying to God and you not realize it. And then alternatively, that something may not be glorifying to God that at the other time would have been. Absolutely. How do you really, I mean, again, other than just being so mindful of every moment and where your heart is, how can you really identify when something is with God's glory? This is one of the reasons why we have daily repentance. You have the Pharisee who thought he was glorifying God, and he wasn't, right? But then on the last day, you have those who say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You didn't even know it. So you were glorifying God and you didn't know it. So you, you, you devote yourself to the Lord. You do the things that he guides you to do. You worship, you serve, you love your neighbor, you love God. And there will be many surprises on the final day, both ways. But I think if the whole scope of your life, and again, you're going to find major gaps, you're going to find huge failures, you're going to find sins, all kinds of things. But the whole scope of your life, if it's God-focused, you're glorifying him. And that includes, like David, Psalm 51, you know, his mercy. Real quick, final. A general, this is an anecdote from B.B. Warfield. A general officer of the U.S. Army gives an anecdote of his own experience. This is true story, personal experience. He was in a western city during a time of rioting with dangerous people daily on the streets. Okay? City's in an uproar. 
One day he saw approaching and was impressed by a man of unusual confidence and serenity. They're walking the main street, they're going like this, they're passing. As the two passed in the street in the middle of the uproar, he turned around as he passed them to see the man did the same thing. They both turned around and faced each other. The stranger backtracked, touched the officer's chest with his forefinger and asked, what is the chief end of man? And the officer promptly responded, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The stranger exclaimed, aha, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. True story. The officer said, why, that was just what I was thinking about you. It's worth the time and effort required to become a shorter catechism boy or girl. In time, with prayer and the Spirit's blessing, we'll become children of God. So, with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had, and we do thank you that our purpose is to glorify you, to enjoy you, and that in Christ Jesus, you've enabled us to be capable of doing that very thing. Help us to do so on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.